Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part three of a series entitled Christ and Culture. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, episode 27 and episode 28, I might encourage you to go back and do so. But you could actually probably make it through this episode today without needing that previous material, though you still might want to. Um, if you haven't and you just want to jump in, you think today's topic is interest, you can, you can probably manage, you can probably keep your head above water as we go through today's episode entitled Christ and Culture, Part 3, The Battle of the Gods. Let's travel back in time some 2,600 to 3,500 years ago to the ancient city of Babylon. If you spent any time in Sunday school, you'll have at least some familiarity with that name. Babylon was one of the most powerful city-states of the ancient Near Eastern world, home of the infamous Nebuchadnezzar, whom the biblical prophet Jeremiah called the destroyer of nations. In the heart of this wealthy city was a temple over 600 feet tall. Inside of this temple, may very well be the most important thing in all of Babylon. Statue, a golden statue. This statue was, at least according to the book of Daniel in his day, 90 feet tall and was believed by the Babylonian people to be a physical manifestation of their supreme god Marduk. The temple was a portal to their god, a, a link between matter and spirit, though they, they certainly would have, they wouldn't have thought of it in such a modern dualistic way. When a new king would rise to power in ancient Babylon, there would be an important ceremony. Uh, we could maybe call this a sort of inauguration for this king. In order for the king's power to be legitimate, he'd have to grasp the hand of Marduk, the king of the gods. The king's will was now subordinate to the will of Marduk. We could say Marduk is the supreme spirit. What this king does now has been authorized by Marduk. To not subordinate yourself and submit to the king is to rebel against the supreme spirit, the ultimate value of your civilization. Now, before you say, what a strange, superstitious people, let's put ourselves in the shoes of future historians looking back on the American empire. Though never intended originally to be a king, by wielding the power of commander-in-chief of the military that the president of the United States has been considered, especially since at least the end of World War II, to be the most powerful man on the planet. How is this most powerful man on the planet, his four-year reign inaugurated? Well, on the western-facing steps of the Capitol building, looking out to a 555-foot Egyptian-style obelisk, which, by the way, the Egyptian obelisk frequently marked entrances to sacred temples. This 555-foot Egyptian-style obelisk 
dedicated to that legendary military leader who led our God-inspired rebellion against the mighty British Empire and who became our first, we could say, king, though obviously with far less powers than the King of England, George Washington. Standing in front of this coronation ceremony, this inauguration ceremony, is, is one appointed chief of justice in our culture and civilization, or for short, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. This chief of justice presents a Bible to the new king or ruler. The new ruler then swears a solemn oath to that supreme God of the Bible, and he swears to defend the supreme ideals of this American people encapsulated in another sacred text, at least sacred to the people of this empire, the Constitution of the United States. In both past and present, in cultures from ancient Babylon to modern America, there is an ultimate reality, an ultimate story, a, a supreme set of values and transcendent ideas that sit atop this, we could call it a hierarchical structure of culture. What is at the very top, the pinnacle of this hierarchical structure of culture is that culture's God. And if you can remember back to the first episode in this series, we defined culture as a people's total way of life. So one way of looking at this, which would have been very familiar to ancient people, but perhaps we've lost sight of in our modern scientific era, is that the very thing that dictates a culture's entire way of life is the outcome of a battle of the gods. Now we modern people might be uncomfortable with the idea of a, a battle of gods and, and see that as part of the archaic past. But if we can not get hung up on the sort of metaphysics of whether or not, you know, somehow real spiritual entities are doing battle, and instead we can understand the spiritual domain in sort of a framework that we have used already in episode one, a framework for understanding culture as part of three interdependent, related components of culture. And this, again, is some language that I'm borrowing from Dwight Hopkins. Those three aspects of culture, again, are spirit, aesthetic, and labor. So if we can go back and we can kind of reflect on the definitions we had talked about in that, that first episode, and I'll, I'm going to lay them out here. And this isn't, some of this I'm adapting from Dwight Hopkins, but I am, I am putting a bit of a unique spin on, on Hopkins' language. Now, these categories are very much true to the categories, the three categories of culture that Hopkins outlines. But maybe some of my definitions are um, maybe a, a paraphrasing or an expounding on Hopkins' ideas. So remember again that spirit, spirit for, for Hopkins is the, the ultimate meta story. We could say that a culture's spirit is the 
ultimate story, the supreme values and transcendent ideas of a culture. And I think spirit is an appropriate title for that because it is ultimately invisible. This is a domain that in and of itself doesn't really have any materiality to it. When we talk about ideas, transcendent ideas and values, we're not necessarily talking about physical things, though, as we're going to discuss more here in a little bit, those ideas do eventually take shape in real material physical ways. So if we can think about whether it's in a modern American context or even in an ancient context, that every culture and civilization has a ultimate meta story, a supreme value system, a a transcendent group of ideas that, that goes beyond physical limitation. Every culture has a spirit. Every culture has a god or gods at the top of their cultural hierarchy. And what I mean by like meta story, for example, is a ultimate story, like a guiding story. And every civilization has had them. Every culture has these meta stories, these ultimate stories. And these stories are so integral and important to the people within that culture and civilization and how they live out the sum total of their life. The story ends up playing itself out within the culture. And we'll talk about how that's expressed in a moment. But I, I want to I I think about one of my favorite meta stories for a civilization and people. And not favorite because I agree with the story, but just favorite because I, I find it so interesting how this meta story ends up playing out throughout this civilization. And it's the founding story. It's the meta story of the Roman Empire. And maybe you might be familiar with this story. Maybe not. Either way, I'll just kind of give you a, a brief Cliff Notes version of the, of the meta story of the ancient Roman people. In their story, the Roman civilization is the descendant of Mars, the god Mars. Now, Mars is actually just the the Roman adaptation of the Greek god Ares, the god of war. And Mars, so then in in Roman culture, is is essentially the same as the Greek god Ares. This Roman god of war is the father of the entire Roman civilization. And how does this happen? Well, Mars... Uh, takes up a, a, a wife and they have kids and they have twins, twin boys named Romulus and Remus. And as the story goes, Romulus and Remus ended up in a heated dispute over the location of the city they both desired to build. And as Romulus began to build his, Remus taunted him and taunted him. And eventually it got to the point where Romulus was so tired of Remus's taunts that he killed him an act of violence and continued to build the city. In fact, probably the very place where Remus was buried. This is an interesting story because as you look at the history of Rome, one of the things that marks the Roman civilization as a people is that they were a people of war that they conquered. 
that they were a military might, right? So this is a connection to the father of their civilization, which is Mars. It's also a civilization and empire marked by uh, many assassinations and, and political rivalries and uh, struggles for secession of power to the position of what eventually would become emperor. And so what we have here is in, in, in Rome's founding story, the story that they tell themselves ends up playing out in the real lives and culture of their people. So when the Romans, when they name Mars as the father of their civilization, or when the Greek Athenians, those living in Athens, their, their patron god of their city or goddess of their city was Athena or wisdom, we see that that spirit, that meta-story, the spirit informs and subordinates the aesthetic and the labor. So let's kind of refresh our memory on, on what those categories of culture are Again, borrowing some of Dwight Hopkins' terminology here, and I'm expanding on this a little bit. A culture's aesthetic. Aesthetic is the, the creative expression of spirit made manifest in the arts, in the, the written stories and works of beauty. And aesthetic serves as a portal to the transcendent ideal. And it's also both not only a portal to the transcendent ideal, that, that spiritual superstructure that exists beyond the material world, not only is it a portal to that we could call dimension, it also, it's also serves as a two-way street. It becomes a, a physical incarnation of spirit in the here and now. So you could think of it as both a um, telescope and a microscope. All right, so it's a telescope. Aesthetic serves as a telescope to that spirit world, but it's also a, a microscope that, that allows us to see perhaps on the microscopic level how the spirit is made manifest in the, in the physical world. And again, when I say spirit, I just want to be clear, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, all right? So when I use spirit in this podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about spirit as this category of you know, ideas and values and, and even what very well may be a realm of actual non-material spirit. You know, I just got done reading uh, recently going through the Space Trilogy from C.S. Lewis and in that hideous strength, the final book in that trilogy, which to me I think is probably the second best book there. I don't know. You really, if you haven't read that trilogy before, you, you got to check it out. The second book, uh, Paralandra, is mind-blowing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. But in that third book, it's interesting. Uh, they C.S. Lewis uses the word, and he's not using it himself. Some characters in that, that book describe what we could kind of say this spiritual unseen superstructure as they call them macrobes instead of microbes. It's, it's beyond our categories of science, right? And that's, that's really, again, what we're talking about with spirit, this domain of values, ideas. In fact, depending on the story you believe, maybe including 
what we might say are real, whatever that word means, spiritual entities. But I say whatever that means because whether or not Mars was a real and whatever that sort of mean, you know, if we mean that in some sort of scientific sense, was was the Roman god Mars, the Greek god Ares, the Roman god Mars, or the, the Babylonian god Marduk, were they real? Are we talking about, like, scientifically? Would we be able to do a test in a laboratory to verify the reality of what these beings are or might be? And if so, are we just saying that the only way to evaluate what's real from not what isn't real is whether or not it is somehow empirically falsifiable in a scientific laboratory? And that, that's kind of the point, actually, of some of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy is that, no, 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 there's, there's more beyond the constructs of our categories, at least in our culture, that goes beyond that. So whether or not we want to say Marduk is real or Mars was real or uh, Aries was real, it's real because these values are made manifest in the categories of life that we might say are more real or physical or empirical or, you know, able to be perceived and touched with our senses. And that's where the aesthetic lives, the aesthetic lives in the world of our senses, and that's actually how we make the spirit made manifest in the real world. So the meta story, the meta story, while it might be in a spiritual category, can actually be made manifest into physical stories, whether that's in literature, or it could be at least in our modern culture in film or television or in song. In ancient cultures, like especially for like the Greeks, it could be made manifest in theater. So the meta story is expressed and incarnated in the aesthetic of a culture. And this is very much how ancients thought. And this will give you a better understanding of how ancient civilizations and cultures, and there are still cultures today. I shouldn't just limit this to ancient cultures. There are still religious traditions and cultures today that have what we might consider idols. But in many ways, these, these cultures and religious traditions of the past, and there are again some presently, maybe get better than we do that the aesthetic is the physical works of art whether it's a statue to Marduk or whether it's a dollar bill, are physical representations of transcendent spiritual ideas, values, and possibly even what we might say are beings. They get this. And this is why there is such a high regard for things like a golden statue, which we just can't, can't even wrap our minds around in our culture today. We just can't, we can't picture some physical idol, some physical statue holding that much value. But I think in some ways we could. We could get close to that if we sort of reframe the language a bit. Take, for example, the American flag. 
In the United States of America, it's a very debatable topic about how one should treat the flag. There's this entire thing called flag code, which some people treat as gospel truth, right? You don't let a flag touch the ground. You, uh, you know, you never ever would burn a flag, an American flag. Uh, when the national anthem is happening and the flag is displayed, you're supposed to face the flag. You're supposed to place your hands over your heart. And guys, this is, I mean, this is very close to helping us understand why a statue like Marduk in ancient Babylon would have such immense value because we do have a similar aesthetic to spirit connection with the American flag. Why is the American flag so valuable in American culture? Why is it that burning a flag was a sign of rebellion in, in the, uh, you know, in the Vietnam era, even into today? Why is it that even I think I remember President Trump suggesting that there should be criminal punishment for people that burn the American flag? Well, in one way, we could say it's an idol. Now, you might not feel comfortable with that word. You might not feel comfortable with the word idol, but what would be a better word? What would be a better word to describe how an aesthetic creation is a physical manifestation of a supreme transcendent idea? For many people, the American flag is a physical incarnation of a meta-story, a particular story about the way reality works, a particular story about our people and our civilization and our culture. So obviously, we know when people get really, really upset when American flag is burned or if somebody doesn't stand and place their hand over their heart while the national anthem is being sung towards the American flag, we get that what they're not upset about a piece of cloth being burned. It has a different value than a handkerchief or even a, a flag to another country. This flag is the embodiment of our culture's spirit, and that's why it carries such volatile emotions around it. Think of what it would mean for us if we woke up tomorrow morning and flying over the White House in Washington, Washington D.C. was no longer an American flag, but a Russian flag or a Chinese flag, that wouldn't be, you wouldn't just glance over that and go, hey, no, no big deal, right? That would be a significant historic event. But it's really, really weird because we look at that and go, wow, that would be earth shattering. I mean, that would mark a huge, massive change in the history of our people. But all we're talking about is the moving of a piece of fabric and putting a different colored piece of fabric up. But this will help you understand why in ancient Near Eastern cultures, such as the Babylonians, the Persians, and even among the Jewish people, why, why the stealing of gods was such a big deal. Maybe you remember this story if you're someone that 
has grown up or spent any time with the biblical literature, maybe you remember the scene from 1 Samuel 5. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant from Israel, from the, from the Jewish people, and, and they bring it to their capital. They bring it to their temple, and they, they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it to the temple of Dagon, their supreme or chief deity in the Philistine culture. And yeah, I always loved this story. The story was really interesting to me as a kid um, because I just, I, I think as a kid, I could really imagine a sort of battle, a real spiritual battle of the gods taking place. So they get this, you know, they get the Ark of the Covenant, bring it into the temple of Dagon. And the next morning when they bring it in, the people, verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time, this is verse 4, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. This is a serious, serious act. This is, for us, the, the, the raising of the Russian flag over Washington, D.C., and it's, it's hard for us to imagine why this is such a big deal. But if we really truly understand that for the Philistines, they understood this link between spirit and aesthetic in a way that we maybe don't, or perhaps we have made it too scientific, they get this. They get that the spirit and the aesthetic are interconnected and that the aesthetic is subordinate to the spirit. And so in this case, what we have happening is that the aesthetic representation of Dagon has now placed itself subordinately to the aesthetic representation of Yahweh. Again, this is at least right how the story is told from the Jewish perspective. I wonder if, you know, the Philistines, if we had any sort of record of the Philistines from this time, if they would have told the story differently, like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, there was just, you know, a wind that blew in and <laughs> knocked Dagon down. It just so happened to happen twice. Why his, you know, head and feet were cut off and his hands were cut off, that, that's still a mystery to us, but maybe there's some, some other explanation, or maybe it's very well possible that they really did, as they walked into that, understood what was happening. And they understood that the, this manifestation, this physical manifestation of this God was subordinate to whatever the spirit was, whatever the supreme spirit was behind the Jewish story. This is why it's such a revolutionary idea. Now, if you have a problem with there being a quote-unquote real Dagon? Oh, sure. Is there a real Dagon? And was there a real spirit, a, a god, you know, called Dagon and existing in whatever way we want to say is real? Well, okay. 
if we want to talk about that point for a moment, well, you know, as we move throughout the Bible a little bit further into the New Testament, we actually see that the people, the uh, the Jewish people, had now begun to associate the foreign pagan gods with, for example, like Baal, another ancient Near Eastern deity, with forces of demonic darkness, right? So this is actually where the term Beelzebub comes from or Baal-Zebub. Baal-Zebub was the sky god. And remember when Jesus is casting out demons in the New Testament, he gets accused of doing it by the power of Beelzebub or Baal-Zebub. At that point, they have already made this association between the spirit of these other cultures and civilizations, the, the pagan gods, and their connection between actual real demonic principalities and powers. Now, do you have to make that same connection? You don't have to. I, I find it intriguing. I have no problem with it. I'm also, I'm also not saying that in order, you know, to be in the Christian tradition that you would actually have to hold that you know, Dagon was a fallen angel or some other demonic principality and power. What I would say, though, is to say that it's not real is a massive mistake. Even if you want to kind of retain a sort of modernist scientific approach to this stuff, you're doing yourself a disservice if you actually don't see Dagon and Marduk and Mars as real spirits real spirits that inform a meta story that inform transcendent ideas that inform a superstructure of values and that make themselves manifest in physical aesthetic I'm going to come back towards the end or later in this episode and we're going to come back to maybe some of this connection between spirit and aesthetic, but I don't want to leave out the other category. Aesthetic isn't the only domain of culture that's subordinate to spirit. Hopkins labels another domain and he calls this labor. Now, what is labor? Labor is a, it's a category that could realistically be split up into a bunch of other smaller categories, subcategories. If you wanted to have more categories than these three, you totally could. Three, having these three is helpful just to perhaps consolidate information. But labor is the human work of adapting or repurposing nature for individual or community benefit. So when we enter into the world, we enter into a world of, of nature. You know, this isn't just a world of ideas that we inhabit. There is a real material, physical world that exists uh, in some ways independent of whether or not humans existed, right? The natural world has been here long before Homo sapiens. It's been here long before humans. And so we enter into this, this world of nature and it appears not to be automatic that we can survive in the natural world. We can't survive in the natural world without working to adapt or repurpose the natural world to, to survive. 
And this is as simple as doing things like eating, right? Whether that's eating vegetation or plant life or whether that's eating meat or hunting, we are interacting and working with the natural world that we have found ourselves within and repurposing it. We're even making tools for hunting. We're making tools to grow a garden or to go fishing. We're at a basic level, our human need to survive and to have food and sustenance requires us to adapt and repurpose nature for our own benefit and also for the benefit of those in our community. Labor is also the human exchange of the fruits of our work. So as we interact with the natural world, as we adapt it and repurpose it, not only for individual benefit, but we live in community, we live in connection with other human beings. And so sometimes and oftentimes, especially in modern civilization, always we are exchanging the fruits of our work with another person for what is hopefully our benefit and also the benefit of the other. We could say this human exchange of the fruits of our work can be everything from, uh, as a sort of smaller subcategory, we could say it's economics, right? It's business, it's commerce. But surrounding all of these interactions with other humans, we, we need a framework. We need a ethical code. We need laws to preserve and protect the human relationships. We need a structure that provides us with stability, that protects us in those exchanges of the fruits of our labor. So this is where you could say the subcategory of politics, of law, can be found. It falls within the domain of labor. And labor and aesthetic have this really unique relationship because the fruits of our labor, when we repurpose nature for individual or community benefit, we do so with a certain aesthetic. Everything has an aesthetic. Everything has a creative expression of spirit, whether it's the fashioning of a tool like a spear or a hammer or a garden hoe whether it's even in the making of a system of exchange, whether that's even in the making of dollar bills and coins, you'll notice our, all the currencies around the world have different aesthetic to it. This is so, so fascinating. And that aesthetic that's used in the exchange of the fruits of our work reflects the spirit it reflects our ultimate values. It reflects our transcendent ideas. This is why when perhaps a new coin comes out it, it, that has someone else's face, someone from history on it, it's a big deal to be immortalized in a coin or a dollar bill. And I don't know if you remember, maybe this is still the case, but um, you know there had been some pretty fierce debate over the last decade or so about whether or not Andrew Jackson should be on the $20 bill. Well, why do people care about that? Well, they care about it because those dollar bills, that $20 bill is a medium of relationship. It's a medium of exchange between human individuals and it reflects our spirit. It is 
also made manifest in an aesthetic. And so the aesthetic represents spirit. The labor represents spirit. And the aesthetic and labor are sometimes they're difficult to distinguish because they're so interwoven together. But all of them, aesthetic and labor, are subordinate to spirit. Aesthetic and labor reflect the actual supreme values of a culture. I think this framework will even help you guys to understand the message of the biblical prophets better. Much of the message of the biblical prophets, whether it's Jeremiah or Amos or Isaiah, is that no matter what story you say you believe aloud, the real way that your values, your actual supreme values are measured is in your labor and your aesthetic. In the case of, let's think, for example, of even Isaiah 1, the message of Isaiah to the people of Israel in chapter 1, he says, you know, <laughs> he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? This is in verse 11. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I can endure iniquity. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Again, the prophet is calling out the connection between Israel's practices of labor and the real reflection of their labor on their values. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The message of the prophet Isaiah here is that your labor does not actually reflect the spirit that you claim that it does. In fact, what's happened is that Israel has had a fake aesthetic. <laughs> they've, they've continued a sacrificial system of aesthetic, a worship system, a liturgy that is actually devoid of its real connection to spirit. And you can tell this because the real connection the real connection should be happening between their aesthetic and their labor. But labor, their labor, their, their unjust treatment of people, their, uh, you know, bloodied hands, as God says through the mouth of Isaiah, reflects that they actually aren't following God's ultimate meta story. They're not following God. They're not following the spirit of God, because their supreme values are made manifest actually in their labor. 
This will help you understand the message of the prophets and the message of John the Baptist and Jesus, which is bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, I just used the term fake aesthetic, but in reality, there is no fake aesthetic. What I meant by that was that Israel had been going through aesthetic practices that on the surface might look like they were the the things God was looking for, but they actually weren't. It actually wasn't a genuine aesthetic flowing out of the revelation of Yahweh. It was an aesthetic that reflected other values. It was an aesthetic that allowed them to go through the motions without opening themselves up to what we could say is the incarnating spirit of God. This is the thing that actually produces transformation. So this is why we get to David, for example. Now, David is, David, I should say, backtrack here. David is before the biblical prophets. And why is David able to make aesthetic changes in Israel's worship? Well, he goes and sets up this tabernacle, this this place of perpetual song. But like, why was he allowed to do that? <laughs> Why could he do that? You know, didn't God tell Moses, no, this is the particular liturgical practice. And really liturgy is a, a, quite actually is a synthesis of labor and aesthetic. So why was he able to do that? Well, what David was able to do, and David's got a long list of problems in his life, but one thing that we could say was commendable about David and maybe Maybe this is the thing that you could say, well, David's a God, man after God's own heart. If that could be said about anybody in his day, maybe it's him. You know, we have to kind of have a sliding scale of our ethical expectations of people in this time. But maybe for David, the thing that made him a man after God's own heart was an ability to recognize when his aesthetic was disconnected from the, the genuine spirit of God. And he was able to make an adaptation in Israel's worship practices by changing the aesthetic so that the aesthetic, because now they're in a different time and culture, and maybe that old system wasn't continuing to allow them to remain connected to spirit. It was no longer a portal to the transcendent, and it no longer incarnated the spirit. The spirit was doing something new in this culture. And so David adapts that so that it would be a meaningful point of connection. Now, David's son Solomon makes the biggest mistakes in, in the, you know, Israel's kingdom up until this point. David had made massive mistakes. Don't get me wrong. There had been massive mistakes between and, and disparities between what the true spirit of God, the true meta story, the true transcendent ideas of God and the labor of David, right? David, David's labor was all out of whack at times. And so, but the problem we see, like the thing that marks a serious turning point in Israel's history as a particular kingdom in a, a particular place is when Solomon, as he begins to marry foreign women as part of a, you know, part of a process of expanding his power. This is very normal in that ancient world. You marry another king's 
daughters so that it would be like a peace treaty and, you know, you're effectively going, hey, I know your people aren't going to invade me because I am married to your daughter and our kids that we're going to have together are going to be your kids. So it was this like ancient, you might consider it a primitive way of peacemaking, but that's likely what got Solomon into this whole ordeal of having so many wives, but he also had concubines too. So, so Solomon, Solomon loved Solomon loved his women. But one of the problems that emerges is that with these foreign women that Solomon had married, they brought with them their own gods. They'd brought with them, if we're following again the language I'm using, reflecting Dwight Hopkins' terminology, they brought with them the foreign spirit, the foreign spirits of their culture, Solomon's problem was that he didn't take seriously enough these gods and spirits. He didn't take seriously enough the biblical imperative given even to Moses that Israel was supposed to have no other gods before him, which is kind of an interesting one, right? Uh, it's a I think it's a misnomer to think of ancient Israel as starting off as a monotheistic religion. In fact, what it's far more likely is that Israel had always acknowledged the existence of these gods because you can see in this ancient mindset that the connection between aesthetic and spirit is far more dialed in than what we have today. Solomon didn't take it seriously enough. And in fact, he allowed and instituted the setting up of what the Bible calls high places. And these are altars of worship to these foreign gods, which include stories, meta stories about the gods' need for things like human blood and human sacrifice. You know, take, for example, the, the worship of Molech. I think I've talked about this in other podcasts, but the ancient practice of worshiping Molech involved, which was a Canaanite deity, Canaanite deity, I should say, the worship of Molech involved the sacrifice of children in a horrific way. And it's not like killing children by beheading or lethal injection or something. Some other process would be better, but th this way is a just for whatever reason, in my mind, is especially horrific. When people would sacrifice children on the altars of Molech, Molech was fashioned and formed into a bronze statue. Again, remember, connection between aesthetic and spirit. The statue is a portal. It's a entry point, a door into the transcendent, but it's also a physical manifestation of that transcendent God in the here and now. So a massive bronze statue to Molech, and they would heat up this statue to scorching hot temperatures. And the hands of the statue were formed, the uh, palms up and together, like you might do if you're trying to cup water out of a, out of a lake or a pond and, and try to hold that water in your hands. And what would happen is parents would bring their children as a sacrifice. They would bring them, turn these children over to the priests of Molech to be placed on this scorching hot bronze 
statue and they would fan the flames hotter and hotter. And as the child would be screaming and writhing in pain as it's literally being burnt alive in the metallic hot bronze statue hands of Molech, the priests of Molech would chant and sing and beat drums to drown out the noise of the children. Is that really a God you want to worship and follow? Is that really a God you want to have at the pinnacle of your hierarchy of culture, your structural hierarchy, your hierarchical structure of culture? Do you really want to have your aesthetic and your labor subordinate to that sort of superordinate principle? I don't think so. But for some reason, it was very enticing to Solomon. There was something about it that enticed Solomon. But before we go and say, hey, Solomon, you're crazy. Is Molech dead? Do we not worship Molech in our culture today? And what about Mars or Aphrodite? When our presidential kings place their hand on the Bible, are they really swearing a solemn oath? To the God of the Bible? Is this a pledging of allegiance to Jesus? And what about us? What about the sorts of aesthetic endeavors and the labor that we participate in? As we evaluate our aesthetic and our labor, what sort of spirit does it reflect? Is there actually a battle of spirits, a battle of gods behind the scenes competing for our affection, our adoration, our aesthetic, and our labor. And how can we possibly evaluate whether or not the story that we believe, the principles we believe, the values we believe, the God we serve is actually the true God? And are we serving him alone or above all other gods? Or maybe like Solomon, have we allowed these other gods to shape our meta story? Are we actually trying to serve two masters? One strategy for evaluating whether or not we are in the right story, <laughs> one strategy for evaluating the spirit that we subordinate ourselves to is a method we may want to call meta-story analysis and comparison. And this is a strategy or I should say a methodology employed by a theologian named James McClendon or J.W. McClendon. McClendon has a really interesting book. It's a third volume in a sort of systematic theology that he does. He comes from a, a bit of an Anabaptist tradition 
And uh, while I don't agree with McClendon on everything, I find his approach in the third volume of his uh, systematic theology called Witness to be an interesting approach that he doesn't give this this title, but I'll give it this title of a meta story analysis and comparison. For McClendon, this sort of meta meta story analysis and comparison has three steps to it. First, we should mine the hidden religious depths in culture and and search for evidence of genuine hunger, real truth, goodness, and beauty. This is very much what Paul does in his sermon on Mars Hill with the Athenian Areopagus, those best of the best philosophers in Athens. We see that in Acts 17 and how he actually affirms them in their religious devotion and their search for genuine truth, goodness, and beauty. So that's the first step. The second step is that we should also then, as we're mining the hidden religious depths in culture, we should also be aware of the self-deceit and destructive lies that are evidence of the sin and demonic. And we can see that. We can see the fruits of sin and the demonic. This is, again, of course, is using language in our Christian story, but we just have to affirm that's the starting point that I'm coming from, that many of you are coming from. We see evidence of that in the destruction evident in a culture's aesthetic and especially their labor. If the term demonic was ever appropriate, it would be appropriate to describe the worship practice I just laid out for you, the worship of Molech through child sacrifice. The evidence of death, destruction, deceit is made manifest in the aesthetic and labor of that particular story. And what does that, what are the fruits of the story of Molech? The fruits of the, the study, the story of Molech made manifest in the aesthetic and labor is the death of children, the violent, horrific death of children. That is at least one way when we step back and are evaluating the stories of culture, we go, there's a problem there. (laughs) There's a problem there. And that's not to say that there weren't other possibly good, true, and beautiful aspects of Canaanite religion, of whether it's We've talked about Roman culture and Greek culture. There certainly has been. Of American culture, there certainly has been. But we also want to be looking for the fruit of that culture, the fruit of that story. And if that fruit is death, destruction, and lies, if that fruit leads to the harm of individual image bearers, if it leads to the harm of creation and it's destructive then I would contend along with McClendon that it has its roots in an untrue story. It has its roots in a deceptive story. It has its roots in a spirit which is not the spirit of God. The third step in in this sort of meta-story analysis and comparison is that McClendon encourages the church to live in this present instance as exemplars of the gospel. 
this is the the meta narrative of Christ's story, that the true spirit of God. It's what McClendon likes to call the great story, and it ends up being the the hermeneutic key for reading culture, doing cultural analysis, evaluating the spirit behind the aesthetic and the labor. So let's kind of practice this methodology or see how it could be applied to the arts and aesthetic in American culture and in American history. And I'm going to use some examples that McClendon uses in the book I've already referred to, Witness. Art and aesthetic, we could consider a, an, an act of communication of speech. Art and aesthetic is a act of speech and communication of spirit. And so one way that we can kind of evaluate the artistic medium and the expression, we could think of it as the communication of an artist as they attempt to communicate spirit. So what has some of the historic American art forms and expressions of aesthetic revealed about perhaps the different gods of our spirit? What have they shown us? Well, first, as McClendon brings up, a brief history of visual art in America shows that there, there's been a schism between what he calls the transcendental impulse and the, quote, dominant empirical mode. In other words, there's been a bit of a divide between whether or not visual arts are to intended to capture the world empirically or whether they are whether they are primarily for the purpose of describing a world beyond the material here and now. And this sort of divide represents that there isn't necessarily like a unified story in American culture. You have subcultures, you have competing stories, even within our own civilization, competing gods that inform different stories and values. We certainly, as we've talked about many, many times in this podcast, probably to the point in which you're getting tired of hearing about it, one of the stories in recent American history has been the story of naturalism. It's been the story of materialism, of physicalism, that the material world is all that there is, that that is ultimate reality. And that can be reflected in American art and expressions of art that seem to just want to capture the here and now in an empirical sort of scientific way because that reflects the values of the artist. It acts as a portal to the transcendent idea. It just so happens in this case that that transcendent idea is that there is no transcendent. I know that might be a paradox, but that's the case versus visual arts that perhaps are intended to serve as gateways to a world that goes beyond empirical, empirically discoverable world. We can also see it in literature and in film as we look throughout American history and we can see reflections of certain ideals and values that might have alignment with what, again, McClendon called the great story, this ultimate meta story, the ultimate meta narrative. I've brought this up in video content before on my YouTube page that take, for example, the superhero genre. When the superhero genre attempts to tell a story that portrays the ultimate act of heroism, when they can't think of any higher value to portray, 
they have the hero perform an act of self-sacrifice, actual giving, a laying down of their life for the sake of others. We might say that in many ways, because of our, we do have a maybe a Christian narrative as part of our culture, that there is a degree of resonance as we compare that story with the great story. But we also see in the superhero genre how the story also reflects a more American story. And I want to even take you back to your history classes, your early American history classes, and think about the story of American independence and the 4th of July. Think about the story we sing when we sing the national anthem. What is that story in a nutshell? The story is that freedom comes through rebellion and violence. Now, I'm not making a critique on history because this is actually the way that we have gained, we did gain our independence from Britain, established a new governmental system, and I am not anti-American. I'm so thankful for our history. There was a lot of injustices that were happening throughout the British Empire, um, yes, there are a lot of injustices that continued after the American experiment began, but I just want to focus on the story. What is the story that we tell ourselves? And in some ways, I think you can see in the superhero genre elements of both stories. Now, is the American story completely synthesizable, if that's even a word, with the great story, the story of Jesus. I don't think it is. Simultaneously, I don't think it's completely devoid of that. But in the superhero genre, for example, we see, without question, the way that you you might ultimately need to perform an act of heroism and self-sacrifice. But along the way, you also have to defeat evil by literally kicking its butt. You have to go to war. You have to fight. The superhero movie genre shows us how violence is an important part of redeeming the world. Now, is this part of the Christian story? Well, that's certainly up for debate. We've talked about that in much earlier podcasts. But I would say this, that it is not the way that Jesus chose to liberate the world. Now, much of our cultural story, our aesthetic stories expressed in mediums of art and entertainment might reflect a bit of the sort of Protestant Christian culture and paradox dualism that we talked about in the last episode, where there might be a certain way that God interacts with the world outside of the church, and we see those values, we see a different mode of interaction that is instruction for the people of God within the church. And I'm not arguing against that, but I think that we might even see that in our works of art and, and culture. And, and part of the problem with the paradox approach is that it's dualistic, and we do see this schism between the material world and the world of spirit. And that is has been frequently, that schism is frequently presented, as we've already talked about, in visual arts. It may even be part of our theater tradition, if we want to consider even popular popular movies and blockbuster uh, Hollywood box office hits 
an expression of theater that we we see this sort of well this might be the way the world works out there you have to kick the bad guys but but we also want to highlight the example of hero, heroism that looks like self-sacrifice but maybe that self-sacrifice is actually a lot closer to our american stories of soldiers who die giving up their lives i don't know that's up for for debate but one area that mcclendon highlights where we as Americans have maybe had less of a schism as he brought up the original American creation of jazz music. In jazz, McClendon sees a historic merger of gospel ideas and cultures represented by African-American spirituals and Catholic Creoles who were largely influenced by European music into a, the synthesis of a new dynamic and spiritual expression. And in many ways, maybe jazz is a great model for how we can do this sort of theological, cultural theological engagement, this meta uh, story reflection analysis and comparison and how we can possibly navigate a diverse landscape of competing gods and stories. The jazz and the sort of blues jazz tradition has a heavy emphasis on knowing the past and holding on to the truth and the goodness and the beauty of the past. This is why blues and jazz culture starts by teaching their students the standard tunes of the past. You have to begin with that past foundation of wisdom, but you don't just stop there with the past You are constantly in this jazz blues tradition. You are constantly encouraged once you've come and you've understood the past to constantly re-express these tunes as your own unique expression of that. And in many ways, maybe jazz, again, is a good model for our sort of theology of culture We are people called to be rooted in a truth that always was, a truth that for the Christian is rooted in God's biblical narrative, in the grand story of Jesus and the scriptures. And then we are called to re-express that appropriately for each generation's new audience. One of my favorite blues artists and musicians is Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. For years, I had my own uh, signature Stevie Ray Vaughan Stratocaster. And I couldn't play it probably 10% as good as Stevie Ray Vaughan, but I love studying Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray Vaughan was a, a master of kind of recontextualizing two primary artists that he borrowed ideas from, that he honored that past, and he borrowed from Jimi Hendrix and from Albert King. So, you know, you guitar aficionados, you can listen to a bunch of Hendrix, listen to a bunch of Albert King, who were both came before Stevie Ray Vaughan. And you can hear when you listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan, you go, oh, that, that's Jimmy. That's hints of Albert King. You know, these are the guys that he goes to, the well that he digs from and draws from to present and recontextualize that story for a new contextual audience. But when I listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan or I listen to 
Coltrane, for example, I don't hear people simply telling a story. These artists have somehow bridged this gap between spirit and aesthetic. Now, much of this I know is kind of bound to our own sorts of experiences and aesthetic tastes. But for those, for me, those two men, they take you somewhere. They are incarnating the moment. They are allowing themselves to essentially almost be vessels of spirit, right? And they are taking the story and bringing it into the now and making it fresh and alive and new. There's a great, great documentary on John Coltrane out there called Chasing Train. Everyone, you should check it out sometime because you can really see in a genius like Coltrane the deep connection for him between his aesthetic expression, the labor, because this was work for him, right? This is actually part of the way that he exchanged the gifts that he felt like he had been given with others around them. He exchanged them for money, right? But not just for that. He exchanged that that aesthetic expression to help other people step into a story. And for, for Coltrane, who I, I wouldn't say is like, you know, he's, he's probably not a guy you're going to let preach if you're at like a evangelical church on a Sunday morning, but a deeply religious and very, very spiritual guy who, who dedicated his, possibly his greatest work of art, a love supreme to God This was, for him, a way of making manifest and trying to incarnate the Spirit of God into his music. And how can we evaluate that? You know, I talked way back in the first episode, it seems like a long time, it was only a few weeks ago, the first episode of this series about, you know, kind of my experiences in a Christ-against-culture theological tradition where, you know, we had to consider all secular music to be demonic. I think in many ways, a better way of evaluating aesthetic is by evaluating the fruit that the consumption of that aesthetic produces in your life. Because if that aesthetic is actually a portal and a door to a realm of spirit, well, one way that we test the spirit, one way that we practice discernment is by seeing whether or not it bears witness to Christ, who is the ultimate source of truth, goodness, and beauty. And so do these fruits of the spirit, are they made manifest in your life as you behold these aesthetic creations? I also used to love the Australian band uh, Silverchair. They were were one of my favorites when I was uh, a teenager. And I I actually liked them more than Nirvana and some of the other more popular grunge bands of that era. But I remember uh, Silverchair had a song called Suicidal Dreams. And the chorus sang, my suicidal dreams, voices telling me what to do. And I remember how that song would take me somewhere when I was listening to it. And I I know the sort of effect that a song like that had on others as well, how it produced in them, any people, and this is one of the 
frequently cited symptoms or problems with maybe the music of that era was how it would make manifest in people suicidal thoughts and tendencies. If you're comfortable with reframing it this way, we could also say that it made manifest a particular spirit in a person. We could maybe even go as far as to say that at times that spirit possessed people or oppressed people, similar to what in the Old Testament King Saul experienced, this heavy spirit that would take a hold of him. And this actually reminds me of the problem Christians in the first century were writing with. And even, you know, the New Testament even at times seems polyvocal on this. Can Christians eat meat sacrificed to idols? It's a similar problem. Spirit, the invisible spirit, the invisible realm of spirit subordinates all of these other realms of our life. And so we should be careful and attentive to the story and the spirits and the transcendent ideas that make themselves manifest in our imminent world, the world that we might call the world of our day-to-day lives. Now, maybe you've been thinking about, as you've been listening to this, okay, well, if I were to compare stories compare the American story to the the grand story, the great story, the, the story of Jesus. Well, Paul, what happens when I can't figure out the story of Jesus that I've heard in Church A versus the story I've heard of Jesus in Church B? There can be even divergent viewpoints among people that are saying they're following God's grand story and what that means. How do I navigate that? Here is the solution or the method that McClendon suggests we participate in. And I I think there's a lot of wisdom and insight. This is Part of even my hope in doing this program is to help people just even become more aware of the different nuances and different Christian traditions and different perspectives because I'm in agreement with McClendon on this point. Each one of us are, as we talked about at the end of the last episode, we interpret the world through a cultural lens. We've brought this up before. We have a particular location and tradition that's unique to us. We could say, and I've used this language, even going all the way back to the first few episodes I did way back on Jordan Peterson, that we all have a convictional location, a location by which we are observers of the world. We become viewers of the world around us from a particular spot, a particular convictional location. One of the problems when we try to find like a singular authoritative explanation of the grand story is that we would have to admit that all of our perceptions of it are bound to our local tradition. 
They're bound to our convictional location. And as we go throughout church history, one of the things that you would see is throughout church history, the, the dominant theological schools of thought, the ways of telling God's great story happen and emerge through the medium of academic institutions which aren't, isn't a bad thing in and of itself. But one of the things you'd have to admit as you step back and look at it is especially, I mean, this has only now changed and has, has shifted in um, very, very recent history. But throughout history, if you were one who could go through an academic institution of higher learning, you're probably someone that's on the upper echelon of the societal hierarchy. Often the theologies that emerge do so through the medium of academic institutions, which aren't necessarily conducive to those who either do not have the means to attend or especially they might not have the perspectives that be that are supportive of the values of the institution and rejected, end up getting rejected by that institution. In some cases, this is most obvious that, you know, throughout much of church history, the the voices of women, for example, have not been valued, right? So you're, you would lose out. There are some rare, rare examples where that, that actually, that, that hasn't been the case, but for the most part, it has been perspectives informed by men. And that's not that all men have the same perspective, but I've been married for 13 years. I will tell you that women frequently have a very different perspective on things than, than men. And so maybe we've lost, we lose some of that when the theological stories emerge only from academic institutions. The other problem that emerges if we're trying to say there's just one grand story and how do we make one grand story is that any attempt to sort of build an unbroken chain of theological succession from my perspective in 2019, which I confess is shaped by my immediate context, history, and culture, to an original source of Christianity, the apostolic witness, is doomed to failure. This doesn't mean that these attempts to find the true past are without merit. This is what I'm doing and helping to do with this podcast is to help people sort through maybe their own traditions and experiences, even dive back into the past to see sort of the how may, maybe different attempts to tell the grand story have more merit or less merit than others. But the true past, that unbroken chain between the apostles and you, it doesn't exist, man. I hate to break it to you. I know some traditions might boast that they are you know, have a more unbroken chain. I know that's one of the appeals many people are experiencing as they explore like Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism, for example. But my opinion would be even those traditions, you just can't say that it is an unbroken apostolic chain. There's other flaws with that, though I won't get into it this time. But this doesn't this doesn't, while this doesn't mean that these attempts to find the true pastor without merit, there is a necessary task though, like the, like jazz music of, we have to take the truth that we have received from the past and somehow bring it into our contemporary context while acknowledging the limitations of our immediacy. 
while we acknowledge those limitations, the immediacy, we realize that in every generation, the music is going to be a little bit different. It's, it's not going to be listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan is not the same thing as Jimi Hendrix. They're in slightly different generations. So as that happens, it can be difficult to sift through. If we're trying to trace the origin of blues guitar all the way back, we can, we can do so. But does that mean that the way that Jimi Hendrix played the guitar should be identical to someone like Muddy Waters? No. Is he not being faithful? No, he's recontextualizing. How do we learn this? How do we come to understand this? Through contact with more perspectives, through expanding our worldview and our horizons to those attempts at recontextualizing in many different cultures and contexts. You might be concerned here that this is some sort of like postmodern, you know, truth is relative. And I'm not saying that. I do think there is an objective, grand story, a great story. But I do think one of the things that we can learn from our experience and interactions with our own limitations is that there might be another culture, there might be another person that lived in a different place, a different time, a different culture, that their story, their values might actually have more in alignment with the grand story. And it's only in coming face to face with them and only in coming face to face that you see that perhaps you had another God that you were worshiping alongside Christ, that you had a competing God and that you come face to face with your brother or sister who perhaps was raised in a different part of the world and they had a different value and maybe they had a different way of doing labor or they had a different aesthetic and you come face to face with that and you're able to see it exposes perhaps the idolatrous spirit of your own cultural story. You know, as many of you have picked up on from hearing my own retelling of my past and my own religious tradition, many of you probably picked up on that I wasn't raised in a particularly Calvinist tradition, in fact, very anti-Calvinist. And when I was, so when I was younger, I really liked dunking on Calvinists and really liked these sort of polemic arguments against Calvinism and against, you know, reformed traditions, whether it was, you know, Jonathan Edwards all the way to, to Piper today. But I've softened on that <laughs> because my my time spent with real actual, not just ideas, but actual people who held to that particular way of telling the grand story of God helped me see deficiencies in my own story in very particular ways. In fact, I'm so indebted to people that I worked with and taught with that came from this very strong reformed tradition who had this very high value uh, of, of, of studying the scriptures, of, of biblical exegesis. And I came from a tradition that kind of frowned on that, you know, it, it frowned on anything that involved 
being prepared or or reading a book outside of the Bible. You want to just have to have this sort of what you thought was this pure medium of connection between you and God. And the way you experienced that was through spontaneity and inner witnesses and feelings and stuff like that. But my Reformed friends helped me become a better student of the Bible. My interactions with people on the more Anabaptist side of God's story have helped me see some of my blind allegiances to Mars <laughs> because part of this American story, much like the Roman story, is this sort of very high value of war and violence and many Anabaptist voices, or at least kind of in that sort of school of thought, even if they're not full-on Mennonite Anabaptist or something like that, have brought up and reminded me of the nonviolent way of Jesus in the early church. And it's helped me re-examine the story that I was associating to God that maybe wasn't actually the true God. Maybe it was because my particular location, my cultural location and convictional location hadn't been able to discern the difference between Mars and the triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So this process is a dynamic process. It's not a static process. It's not a statue that gets made. It's not an idol of cement or stone or gold that you make and now it just stays that way. No, it's a process of transformation. It's rooted in a truth that always was, but the revelation of that truth won't be complete until the end. Oh, this is like the beautiful thing about this Christian story, this grand story. And this is something that's been held by divergent viewpoints, whether it's the story that has come from the more academic institutions that produce the minds of people like Thomas Aquinas, or whether it's emerged from the stories and songs of slaves singing spiritual songs. It's the promise of the completion of the story. It's the promise that what is true, the ultimate truth that is God, will be made manifest in the arts and in aesthetic as pure, matchless beauty. It will be made manifest in labor as the ultimate good for all creation. Well, I hope today's episode helps you make sense of some ancient history. It helps you make sense of even the Bible. You know, one of the things I was even thinking of as I was, you know, doing my reading and research for this is how understanding how the ancient world the connection between spirit and aesthetic and labor is much more explicit and intertwined will help you make sense of even things like some of the violence that you see in the Old Testament and how and what that would have really meant to the people. I think of one of the best instances of this is Samson's, uh, you know, knocking down of the temple of Dagon 
And when that happens, modern people, we look at that and go, man, was that a, you know, a suicide bombing, right? And, and we're thinking of it in like political terms and we're thinking of it through a modern lens. The ancient readers, I don't think, read it like that. I don't think, you know, especially for Christians in the first century, they certainly didn't read the story of Samson and the way that he destroyed the temple of Dagon and, you know, killed himself in the process. They didn't think of it as a... Uh, encouragement to go out and to kill people and to, you know, if, even if it means killing yourself in the process. No, they they saw this as a, a an act of spiritual war. They they saw this as a battle of the gods, right? That when Samson destroyed that temple of Dagon, that it was really a statement about the superiority of Israel's god over the Philistines' god. Another example that came to mind was the the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? And they have this sort of showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah and whose God is going to set fire to the altar first. And one of the things you see is uh, Elijah, you know, ends up praying a simple prayer and it works for him. But the prophets of Baal are like cutting themselves, right? Which I find really, really interesting. The spirit that they followed led them to self-harm, right? Demonic manifestation, fruit of death, fruit of destruction. And of course, all of their chanting and praying and self-mutilation doesn't work. Elijah's works, he wins. And then he also, probably the troubling part again for more modern readers is the more troubling part is then Elijah then like kills all the prophets of Baal. And we wrestle, rightly so, with the sort of ethic that that might present. But again... I think there's a difference between how we read that and how the ancient an ancient worldview reads that. This is Elijah's, not Elijah's violent triumph over these prophets of Baal. This was a, more about a symbolic demonstration of Yahweh's superiority over the Baal gods. And we could say similar things about the book of Joshua, the conquest of the Canaanites. This isn't about giving a stamp of approval on genocide or war. Again, early Christians, first, second century, up third century Christians did not interpret it like this. They saw it as a decisive act in a spiritual battle of the gods. And this is a way that I think even we can help sort through some of that violent language and the, the images of massive battles and conquests of people that are rightfully do give us pause, you know, pause for ethical question and concern. But I think one of the things that might be helpful is understanding this sort of cultural theology, this battle of the gods mindset, the connection between spirit and aesthetic and labor and seeing the ancient world have a much more integrated view of reality should hopefully help us understand what the New Testament authors say. Like the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want to thank all of you for listening over these last couple of months. The amount of listeners has really, really increased. That's been so encouraging to see, but even more so the interactions I've been having with those of you 
most of whom I've never met before in my life is so, so encouraging to see many of you reaching out to me via Twitter or getting people reaching out via direct message on Instagram. You know, there's probably a better way of figuring out how to engage dialogue and and have discussion together. I want to work on that. But uh, at this point uh, in the game, this is the best we can do. But we do have, I do have hopes of improving that for the future of doing things like building a website, maybe having a question and answer forum, some other things just to make sure that there's a place for this to not just be you listening to me talk, but we could engage together. You could engage with other people and exchange ideas. Again, this valuable thing that happens that we just talked about in today's episode, the free exchange of ideas that help us see beyond our cultural limitations and help us perhaps see blind spots, help us compare our story with another story and one that might be closer to God's great story. All this stuff is so valuable. We're working on it, but one of the ways you can help us get there, several of the ways you can help us get there is by, first of all, again, subscribing, um, actual, actually subscribing, not just kind of like manually going to this podcast all the time helps because the more subscribers, the more likely other people will come across this podcast. You can also help by leaving a review. I'm not fishing for compliments. I have a real missiological focus in this, and that mission is to help other people discover this podcast without spending a bunch of money on advertising. And I, you know, I don't know about that whole world. <laughs> Anyways. And then finally, uh, really would love your support on Patreon to become a financial contributor. Uh, I'm intending to do more things for those that are Patreon supporters to just thank them for the support that they give. You can see there's tiered rewards there. We're way, way, way under the 300-person goal. That was like my first tier, and I'd love your help in getting there. Um, It would mean the world to me. It would really help us take things to the next level and maybe improve conversation and dialogue and ensure that I can kind of keep doing this at hopefully close to a a weekly pace. So any support you can give is of massive, massive encouragement and is incredibly helpful in the content and the conversations I'm hosting and creating. So thank you guys. Looking forward to talking with some of you, hearing your ideas. You can always reach out to me on Instagram. I, you know, Probably Twitter would be the best place to reach me, at Paul You can try to find me other ways too. That's fine as well. <laughs> always love talking to people in any way you want to reach out to me so thanks for listening till next time